My vision for the future is to see fields of flowers wherever I drive through agricultural land in the pastures. I want to see, you know, meadows, how they used to be, just full of flowers, and also in the crops. If you're looking at it from a perspective of grazing animals, it's far healthier for livestock to have a big range of plants to choose from, and it's healthier for our soils. The microbes in the soil respond to diversity in the same way that the animals respond to diversity. And so it's going to be an absolute win-win situation and, and aesthetically pleasing for anyone driving through the countryside. That was Dr. Christine Jones painting a diverse and vital vision for the future of farming. You'll be hearing more from her later in the show. Welcome back to Farmerama. This month, we hear from across the pond how close connections between farmers and cooks are giving birth to new dishes and revenue streams. We get to the bottom of carbon cycles and learn what it really takes to build humus. Bees buzz happily as they're allowed to express their characteristics in alternative beekeeping methods. And finally, you're invited to get involved in a citizen science project that celebrates allotments and homegrown veg. We also welcome Katie Revel as our co-host on the show today. She's been helping to produce Farmerama with us for a good few months now, so we're excited to have her on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Earlier this year, Abby Glancross caught up with Adam Kay, Head of Culinary Affairs at Blue Hill in New York City. She was in the area visiting its sister restaurant and farm, Stone Barns. Adam tells us how he ended up at Blue Hill. I was cooking at a restaurant in, down in Tribeca, in, in Manhattan, and I had been there for a while and told the chef I was interested in moving on, and he was very supportive, and I told him a bunch of places I'm interested in trailing at, and he said, oh, you got to go and try this new place. This is in 2000. you got to go and try this new place that's just opened up in the West Village. It's called Blue Hill. It's this young chef, Dan Barber. He opened it up with his brother and sister-in-law. You know, Blue Hill had just opened a few months before. So I'd never heard of Blue Hill. I called up Dan. I got his name, called him up, asked him if I can come and trail, and the rest is history. I was hired as the meat cook at Blue Hill, New York, and then worked my way through the kitchen there, and then helped open... Stone barns, and that have been based up here since then. It is so much more than a restaurant. I think what is so unique about what we do here is sort of this obviously, is the collaboration between us and the farms, both Stone Barns, but Blue Hill Farm up in Massachusetts, the namesake of the restaurant, and so many other farms that we work with. A sort of sense of adventure and experimentation, and, and yeah, we, we're just up for anything. And there's sort of nothing beyond the pale for us in terms of ingredients. And, you know, when we find a farmer or a breeder or whoever it is that we're working with who sort of wants to go down the road with us, like that to us is just so exciting. And then for us to be able to have the freedom through not having a menu here and sort of the, the, the style of, of service that we do to be able to sort of tell those stories. You know, we really ask a lot of our cooks and we ask them, you know, they do farm chores, they, they sit in on long meetings with farmers, they sit in with long meetings with seed breeders, we give them readings to do. Like, you know, most restaurants don't expect that of a cook and, and I think we, you know, we're sort of known for that now, so we, we're attracting great young people who are into that. And there are a lot of restaurants around the world that I think are showing this, that, that this idea of what a cook is is a lot more than the vocation of simply cooking food and, and, and feeding people that, that, you know, 
Cooks as thinkers and cooks as, as activists, and you're getting a lot more than just a culinary education. Or it's, it's a redefining what a culinary education is. And that's also just walking out in the field and seeing things which are just like mind blowingly beautiful. I, I don't know the name of it, I, I forget because there's a lot of varieties. You look out here at the window, there's um, the rows of lettuce. There's a, uh, I think it's the second row, and it it's a red leaf lettuce. It looks like a starfish, sea anemone. It's the most beautiful. You look at it, and it's like, like, and I grow lettuce in my home, and it's very nice lettuce. But this is like, I mean, it just you realize what grape farming is, and like, it, it is truly one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. It's, it's, and like, and this is coming out of nature. Yeah. <laughs> it is so beautiful, and I've been working here since the day we opened Stone Barns, and I still walk into the field, and, and it just keeps like they just keep on upping the ante. You may remember back in episode 21, we chatted to Root to Fruit chef Tom Hunt about his clover dish for the Blue Hill Wasted pop-up in London. Well, Adam was there as well. He told us about some of the rather exciting learnings from that short stint, probing how farmers and chefs can work together to reap more from the farm here in the UK. The genesis of these ideas really have been a part of Blue Hills cooking for a while now. In a lot of ways, kind of very much a part of like, uh, you could sort of say like an extension of Dan's theories that he writes about in the third plate. And, and they're things we'd sort of been messing around with and, and exploring, especially here on the farm and, and looking at the farm as sort of a more, in a more holistic kind of a way and, and seeing, you know, what, what are we not tapping into that, that we could be in, in terms of finding interesting stuff to work with in the menu, in terms of creating additional revenue for the farm, etc, etc. So it's like been this thing that we just keep building on. And I think London was a great opportunity to sort of take what we'd learned and bring it to a new context with new suppliers. I mean, that, that was the big challenge in London is, we, you know, in New York, we had 15 years worth of relationships that we could fall back on. We didn't have that in London. It wasn't even reinventing the wheel, we had to invent the wheel. We could have very easily just wholesale bought over the, the wasted New York menu and probably would have done quite well. But we wanted to do something that, that spoke to the British food scene, that spoke to the British agricultural scene. And then we certainly learned things. I mean, I, you know, certain agricultural things that we don't, certainly not here in the Hudson Valley, things that we wouldn't get access to that we got access to there that have certainly piqued our interest that we would probably want to try and seek out here. I'm just thinking of a guy He's a rapeseed oil producer, and we were working with his uh, with the rape greens, which we'd never worked with before. So I don't know how many hundreds and thousands of acres of rape is planted in the UK. It's pretty huge. You can actually get two harvests out of that plant. You can get two revenue streams out of it. You can get the seeds for the oil, but you can actually do a first cutting of the plant, and it's a mustard. It looks like broccoli rub. You know, and it's unbelievably delicious. I remember this guy, look up his name, what's his name? Oscar, Oscar Harding from um, Duchess Rapeseed Oil. He, this guy was unbelievable. First, his rapeseed oil was incredible. He was introduced to us by one of our cooks in London who had actually been a stage here. I remember Oscar speaking to the staff one day before service and he was explaining that actually it's beneficial to the plant to do that first harvest because it actually stimulates root growth and sort of a more vibrant plant and then you still, if you do it early enough in the spring, you still get a great seed harvest to do your oil pressing. So you know, stuff like that was certainly 
That was a great thing that I, I know we, you know, for spring of next year, winter into spring next year, and I, they grow a lot of rapeseed in Canada. Maybe we could find a, a supplier closer. Anyway, that was a cool thing. Ben McKinnon at E5, I, I felt like from the minute I met Ben, like we were, like E5 and Blue Hill were, you know, brothers from another mother kind of a thing, like very much kindred spirits. And uh, the stuff that they came up with, they really just sort of took the ball and ran with it in a very inspiring way. And they seem to be really inspired by what we did. And I guess they're sort of now have started to incorporate a lot of the things that they developed for the pop-up into their production you know, in their retail store. Thank you to Adam and thanks to E5 Bakehouse. We're really grateful to be supported by E5. They've just harvested their Lisbron heritage wheat, which was grown over at Duchess Farms in Hertfordshire. So if you've been waiting to try a loaf, then make sure you drop by soon. In the next month or two, after the grain has rested a bit, they'll be freshly milling this heritage grain for their Hackney Wild and Wholemeal loaves. Back at the end of June, we headed to Groundswell Conference at John Cherry's farm in Hertfordshire. We got to chat to internationally renowned and highly respected ground cover and soils ecologist, Dr. Christine Jones. Her years of experience mean that she has a crystal clear understanding of the way carbon cycles through our soils and the best way to nurture healthy plants and ecosystems. She starts by telling us about what soil really is. Soil as we know it, like fertile topsoil, the kind of soil that we want to use to grow crops and vegetables and pastures, is weathered rock materials like sand, silt and clay. It's going to depend on what the parent material was as to what the texture of the resulting soil is. But that material has to have been in contact with plant roots in order for fertile topsoil to form. Plants are the only things that can form topsoil. If you go to somewhere in the world where there are no plants, if it's too hot, too cold, too dry, too high, too whatever, go to the top of a mountain where there's no plants growing, go out into the desert where there's no plants growing, there won't be any soil there. You'll find rocks and you'll find sand and other things like that, but you'll never find fertile topsoil. So what we need to think about, well, why are plant roots important? Well, plant roots are important because they're connected to the other half of the plant, which is the top bit that we see when we look out across fields that's got green leaves and it's photosynthesising and it's a conduit for energy. It's transferring sunlight energy into the soil through the plant roots. So we have photosynthesis taking place in the leaves, which is converting light energy into biochemical energy in the form of sugars and those sugars are dissolved in the sap of the plant so I call that liquid carbon that's how the plant moves that energy around is just as dissolved carbon in the sap some of it's used to build the plant to make the leaves to make the roots but sometimes you know anything from 20 percent to 50 or sometimes even 80 percent in harsh conditions will be exuded from the roots out into the soil to feed the microbes that actually support the plant so in harsher environments, we find that there's far more carbon exuded from the roots because the plant depends more on the microbes under those conditions to keep it alive. And in turn, the microbes that are receiving their carbon, their energy from the plant, they want to keep the host plant alive as well because if the plant dies, then they die because their only source of energy is carbon coming out of the roots of the plant. So it's a mutually symbiotic relationship of the plants and the microbes in the soil working together, feeding each other basically. The plants feeding the microbes with it, providing energy in the form of carbon compounds, and in return the microbes are providing minerals and trace elements to the plant that it's not able to obtain itself. One thing I certainly hadn't understood before we talked to Christine 
was the two methods of carbon transfer through the soil. Christine explained that both the decomposition pathway and the liquid carbon pathway are important means for carbon to be transferred through plants and soils. But Christine pointed out that we pay very little attention to the liquid carbon pathway, despite the fact that it's crucial to building soil structure. It's also the only way we can store carbon in our soils long term, by building up hummus. So we have two forms of carbon in the soil. One is organic matter, which is just decomposing, you know, plant materials, roots and manures and things like that. And the other one is carbon that's been formed through the liquid carbon pathway, which has been polymerised by microbes in the soil to form this really stable, complex molecules that we call humus. And there's, there's a big difference between humus and organic matter, but unfortunately those two terms tend to be used interchangeably. So organic carbon or organic matter is, as I said a moment ago, it's just plant materials or animal manures or something that are decomposing in the soil. There's a lot of microbes involved in that decomposition process. There's invertebrates as well and earthworms and all of the things that we tend to just call collectively the soil food web. But the end point of that process is carbon dioxide. Organic matter breaks down to carbon dioxide and then it's not there anymore. It's no longer in the soil. You can keep on adding it, which is great, and you keep feeding the soil food web. But all of the processes that are associated with the decomposition of organic matter happen near the surface of the soil. We need to have organic matter on the surface of the soil. But it's not really doing anything for improving the function of the soil at depth. So we want to increase soil carbon for all of the reasons that, you know, it, it improves the nutritional status of plants, it improves soil structure, it improves the way water moves through the soil profile, we don't want to have that just confined to the top couple of inches or the top couple of centimetres of soil. We want that, you know, 30 centimetres down and 60 centimetres down and a metre down so that we really have water penetrating deeply into the soil profile. So... The decomposition pathway, the end point of that is carbon dioxide and the end point of the liquid carbon pathway is the formation of humus, which has a high, it's a colloid and has a very high cation exchange capacity. So it's great for holding nutrients in the soil and they can all be released for plants to plants through iron exchange. And it's got very high water holding capacity. It improves soil structure and, and you know, it basically... That, that is the substance, that's the holy grail for soil. And the more humus you have in soil, the more productive the land is going to be and the more profitable it's going to be for the farmer as well because when you have a lot of humus in the soil and you have the microbes that form that are also the ones that are important for transporting trace elements to plants. Plants will be bricksing at a higher level, they'll have more sugar in their leaves, they'll have more minerals and trace elements in their leaves. They're going to be immune to insect attack and immune to diseases you won't need to use fungicides or insecticides. I mean, I can understand why farmers use them when they need to. We need to get to a situation where it's not even an issue anymore. There is no insect attack. There are no fungal pathogens. Really, the plants need to be stronger. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about it is that the humification process is all part and parcel of the same process that transfers trace elements and minerals into plants because it's that exchange of carbon. When you have sugars coming out of plant roots that's used for making humus, you also have the trace elements and the minerals going in the other direction. It's an exchange process. The decomposition pathway is really well known, but the liquid carbon pathway is less well known. And we need to sort of maybe put a bit more emphasis on that and understand not only how to manage plants so that they have 
deep roots, but also how to incorporate a lot of diversity into our crops and pastures so that we have lots of different kinds of roots in the soil that will support a great diversity of functional groups of microbes, all of which work together. The more diversity we get in there, the more synergism and the mutualism and it really, it's like one and one equals four when you get <laughs> when you get a lot of diversity in there. And that's important for the liquid carbon pathway as well. One of the interesting things that the research into cover crops is showing that, and no one's really sure why, but when you have more than eight different species mixed in together, and particularly if you have like four functional groups in there, it just seems to be like some kind of synergism kicks in and it starts to restore soil far more quickly than you can do with just a two-way mix or a three-way mix or something like that. I don't know why that number is important, but I mean anything over eight, you know, it can be eight, 10, 12, uh, 20. In terms of our cover crops, I don't know what it is about eight that's magical, but it just seems to be like there's been English research on that, there's been German research on that and Canadian research on that mm-hmm. and that number keeps coming up. And then what they're finding is that if you do have more than eight in a mix, it's better than having 200 kilos per hectare of nitrogen. So where there's been multi-factorial experiments with like zero, 100 and 200 kilos per hectare of nitrogen and then one, two, four, eight and 16 species in a mix, they've found that eight or 16 species with zero nitrogen is more productive than one or two species with 200 kilos per hectare of nitrogen. So diversity definitely replaces fertiliser. And they don't have to even be legumes, as long as they're different plant families. So you don't want to have eight species of grass, for example. As long as you've got diversity, you don't need to use fertiliser. And then when you stop using fertiliser, that's just the magical thing because it's the fertiliser often that causes the issues with the fungi and the insect attacks because if plants are high in nitrate, their tissues aren't strong, their cells aren't strong, they haven't got complex carbohydrates and proteins and things in them and they're just absolute heaven as far as insects are concerned. So insect attack of itself is an indicator that the soil's not healthy and the plants aren't healthy. So if we all plant at least eight species in our cover crop or companion plantings, then our soils will build good structure much more quickly, leading to healthier plants and less need for inputs. We're big fans of Dr. Christine Jones, and so we will have more from her next month as she tells us some of the theory behind building soil structure. We'll give you a hint. It all comes down to a whole lot of fungi love. Now, from soils and plants to the wild world of insects that live in harmony with them. Mariana Landsettel explores an alternative view of beekeeping with molecular biologist and beekeeping fanatic Johannes Wirtz. He's currently investigating methods that do not use chemical attacks against the Varroa mite, which is proving so devastating to honeybees all over the world. But first, a bit of jargon busting. We weren't familiar with the intricacies of beekeeping, so we thought you might want some help too. A swarm. Swarming is the process by which a new honeybee colony is formed when the queen bee leaves the colony with a large group of worker bees. A brood. This is basically the little honeybee larvae. Foul brood. This is a bacterial disease that affects the little honeybees, the brood. 
My name is Johannes Wirth. I am member of the board of Medifera and responsible for research in our apiary. The most fundamental difference is that we try to approach our colonies and hives with respect and I dare say with love. Besides of that, we have a number of principles that make us quite a um, strong distinction with respect to conventional beekeeping. The first one is we do colony reproduction only when the colony wants to swarm. Second, our combs are made naturally, that means bees do them themselves. And third, we design to artificial queen breeding. And now in conventional beekeeping you know you have colony reproduction without swarming process. You do make let make the combs with foundations and artificial queen breeding is the method of uh, choice. Why do you <coughs> think that's a good approach? Why would any anybody keeping bees choose that method over the conventional beekeeping? Interestingly enough, <coughs> we have a number of studies that show that one of the most important ways for bee health is no brood for a certain period. And calling reproduction in the swarming process means all the units that you form have for a longer or shorter time a broodless period. Second, it is known that sweating wax is another method to get rid of diseases like American fowl brood or European fowl brood. The third, no artificial queen breeding. Today we have ample evidence that locally adapted colonies cope better with diseases, bring in more honey, build faster combs and have a stronger immune system. So I believe with all these methods we use, have been using for decades, it is very clear that they are essential for bee health. When you as a natural beekeeper approach a hive, look into a hive, what is it that you see and experience? For me the very important aspect is that I try to grasp the colony as a whole. And in this attempt all the bees, be it worker bee, be it queen or be it drone, is kind of an organ of this hive. Second thing is, I would like to fulfill or satisfy the demands of the colony. And so in this way I try really to make it possible that they can express basic behaviors, basic activities and swarming, conformation and natural mating of the queen belongs to these basic facts or basic elements. Would you see the future basically in at least some of the beekeepers or a certain percentage of the beekeepers going into the natural beekeeping direction? In a short term I think no. And the reason for this is that besides beekeeping practice we have also a difficult situation with respect to flower abundance and diversity. And we also have difficulties and problems with respect to pesticides. But for sure, somebody who starts to work with bees in a respectful 
and I should say responsible way, will realize that these two other aspects also belong to be health. And I have the impression in a certain way that these are the trend, beekeepers can become the trendsetter for a healthy environment, more flowers, less pesticide. In this respect, I would say in middle terms, they really contribute to a better health and to a better situation for honeybee and all the pollinators. If you do not want to produce maximal yields of honey, this is the way to go. And it is an easy method, and it is a simple method, and it is an inexpensive method. I would like that many people would be able to see swarming process. It's a moment of joy. It's an amazing impression, this dancing cloud in the sky. There is warmth, and beside movement there is ascent. And whenever this swarm comes in a cluster, it is the least aggressive condition in the life of a colony. You can touch it, you can put your hands through, nothing happens. So I don't see where the danger of a swarm could be. Expect, we think, that it must be dangerous. So it basically is the birth of a new colony? Yes, exactly. It's the death of the old one, the birth of the new one. We've seen that chefs are working closer with farmers. Well, it seems beekeepers are doing the same. We've seen bee boxes on a few farms we visited recently. In a way, it would make sense to have bee boxes on all farms. That's another form of diversification, part of a multi-layered farm, and a very clear business opportunity for a local entrepreneur. And now for a few words from Roscoe Blevins. We met him at Soilhack. He's spreading the word about the My Harvest project. If you're growing food to feed yourself, your family, your neighbours, you can get involved. Roscoe started by telling us about what he grows. I've got um, a back garden which I share with some of my housemates and we've got a greenhouse there which we mostly fill with salads and leafy stuff and herbs for the house and also got an allotment around the corner where we get some of the bigger yields from. I work on My Harvest project at the University of Sheffield and I'm very enthusiastic about soil and what people can grow in their back gardens. So My Harvest is a citizen science project which is encouraging members of the public who grow food in their allotments or back gardens or in window boxes or in schools to submit data about what they're harvesting so we can get an idea of how much food is being produced around the country by individual members of the public. The aim is to get an estimate of how much food is being produced nationally by non-commercial growers, just members of the public like you and me, to get an idea of how that contributes to our national food security. And then from that, we should be able to work out how much we could be growing if we had more space for allotments and growing food. Currently, a lot of our estimates about how much food is being produced and how much food is available are just based on large-scale commercial agriculture. And actually, there's a huge amount of food that's being produced by members of the public in your back garden, in allotments, and this isn't normally taken into account. So we saw this project is going to be drawing a limelight to show how important that contribution is to the health of a population and how much food is being produced from that. Historically, it's very common to grow a lot of your own food in your back garden, say on allotments, where historically the, the movement was much bigger. And that's sort of waxed and waned over the last couple of centuries, but... 
The last time there was an actual estimate of food production in the UK was after World War II when there was the Dig for Victory campaign. And I estimate that 10% of the country's fruit and veg came from allotments, which was 1% of the lands, which is pretty impressive. But since then, there's been no estimate or no idea of how much people are producing. So we're hoping to be the next study to assess that. Any farmers who grow commercially, if you have a veg patch in your back garden, if you have a, a small plot which you grow food for your house in as well, we'd love to hear about that data. And all of this is also linked to, we're linking it to location and looking at soil type and soil quality. So might from this be able to get an idea of what grows best in different places. What we're doing here feels important for everyone, whether you're a allotment holder, you grow in your back garden, or whether you're a commercial farmer of arable, crops, horticulture, livestock, whatever, it feels like this is actually, it's all part of the same thing of looking into how much we're producing as a country and how we can be sustainable in doing that in the future and, and also just generating more attention to it so that members of the public and everyone has more of an idea where their food comes from, be it themselves or be it from farmers down the road or someone on the other side of the world. It's getting, getting people aware of where their food comes from, getting more attention to that area and why it's so important. We're especially interested in this project because it highlights an aspect of our food sovereignty that, as Roscoe pointed out, is often overlooked when it comes to academic research and government policy. And until there's more data, it's likely to stay that way. So it's really exciting that Roscoe and the rest of the My Harvest team are increasing our knowledge of the contribution made by veg patches, window boxes and allotments all over the country. If you have any of those things, check out My Harvest. So, thank you for listening. We hope we've left you with some helpful tips, some inspiration or a new perspective. We'll be back next month. This show was produced by myself, Katie Revel, and Joe Barrett. Thanks to Marianne Lanzettel and Abby Glencross for sending in recordings. See you next month. Toodaloo!